Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I am going to research her, and I'm going to write a play that will reveal her persona. That is all I cared about, because I thought if I can make a hologram, if I can create a, a, a being, a, you know, a being in front of the audience that is, in, that is like her, truly like her, it will inspire people in a, to a degree in much the way she did. And I wanted to carry that inspiration for it because that's what her persona was. That's the Emmy and Tony nominee Holland Taylor talking about the project that has been her passion for almost the last 20 years, bringing to life on the stage the former Texas governor and much larger-than-life figure, Ann Richards. But we began our conversation with a more recent role she's wonderful in, a professor with a passion for medieval literature in the Netflix series The Chair. I'm really eager to talk with you, Holland, because you're (laughs) such a good actress, such a fine actress, And more than that, you're a good talker. You speak in whole sentences and paragraphs. I always admire people who can speak in paragraphs. Well, I I think I'm I'm long-winded is another way of saying what you're saying. (laughs) I mean, I've been told by publicists and people working for the shows that I might be doing press for, try to, you know, try to shorten it, Holland. Try to get a little more compact. (laughs) Try to see what you're saying in a smaller space. No, but you can't get nuanced that way. That's one of the problems that I find. Growing problem for me is I start into a thought and somebody interrupts me because they think I know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. where I, I want to introduce a little nuance. Yes. And I want to establish the ground first and then plant a tree in it and then take fruit off it. Of course. And you remind me that the chair, which is the series running now that you're so wonderful in, is really about, to some extent, I think, about the loss of nuance. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, and and, and, and but, the loss of curiosity about another world. I mean, I I play a medievalist. You have to you have to be familiar with and able to read about five languages, including uh, you know an ancient form of English, nothing like what we know today, and French and German and Latin and Greek, ancient Greek. You know, you have to. They're real scholars, those people, and so, uh, you know, they're, it's fascinating. They go deep into a cave of ancient history. And I think nowadays to interest young people in something like that is a real rarity. You know, I guess I'm a generalist. I've always wanted to be an actress. I've never been anything but an actress, but I have a broad general interest in a lot of things. I think that's a wonderful way to be. 
Um, I can pick up a book on Louis the Fourteenth and be lost in another world and joyously lost. Um, but younger people today in colleges, it's, I, I think it's very hard to teach something like Chaucer. The speech you have with that kid who's a kind of a disturbed, he has disturbed the class. Yeah, yeah, hostile. And you catch hostile, and you catch him outside, and you grab him, and you tell him about Chaucer. Yeah. That's 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 a moment I think I'm going to remember for years to come as an example of really fine acting. Because oh, thank you so much. You could have, you could have just read him the Riot Act in general, but you were talking to that kid, and you meant it from deep in your heart. And yes. and as you just said, you're not yourself a, a medieval scholar, but you had the no. same passion that you would have if you were. Because I got into it imaginatively. I mean, my teacher was Stella Adler, and she always gave us tips. I mean, I like Helen Nearon and that wonderful podcast you did with her. I was so gratified to hear so much of what she said, talking about the practical realities of what one does as an actor. What are the doable things? And Stella was always talking about that. To, to, so I came to her as an adult. I was a seasoned actress when I studied with her. And the younger, most of the class are younger, much younger people just starting out. And she said, kids, acting is doable. There are, mm -hmm. you know, things that you can do to access things in yourself. And there are things that you have to learn. And there's ways that you can behave that mean certain things. And she really codified the behavior. And Helen was talking about some of the same things. And, you know, I, I just love the, the practical realities of what acting is. And in that particular scene... Uh, actually, that scene was cut down. I thought it was, I, I, on paper, there was more to it that was wonderful. Um, but you know, that day we were shooting, was we were shooting a lot outside because this was, this was the, uh, the beginning of COVID. This was the height of the pandemic. The height oh, so of the you, pandemic. So you moved outside for more, more scenes in, than in, you would. Yeah, and it was Pittsburgh, pre-vaccines, January and February and March in Pittsburgh, pre-vaccines. And we were scared. It was, a uh, yeah, of course, when you're at work, Alan, you know perfectly well what I mean. Anything else can be going on in the world. But when you're actually playing a scene, you're, you know, you're, you're blissfully free of it. And you're, you're, you're enlivened by the scene. I've almost been killed a couple of times because I have the impression when the camera's turning, nothing can happen to me that's bad. <laughs> I rode oh, a bicycle nice. into traffic on right at the corner of 59th and 5th Avenue because the camera was turning. Of course, these these strangers who were driving their cars and blowing their horns at me, of course they knew it was that it was a shot, you know. I mean, I was nuts. That was That is a very interesting observation because I think that uh, I might have a bit of that too because when the camera was rolling, when we were working on the scene, it was all important. And the, and the discoveries and the little frissons of feelings and the, the impulses that you get that you maybe didn't get in rehearsal. And, and it's like, you know, you're gone in that. And, and so the, there was no pandemic when we were doing yeah. that scene, except yeah. there was cold. And I literally yeah. could hardly make my face move. I'm sure you've had that experience. <laughs> oh, when you're too have cold I ever. To make your you know, lips move, it was actually hard to speak. <laughs> that was an experience, but there was nothing to be done. It was outside shooting for all of that. I know, but that that thing that takes over you and enables you to do it, no matter the temperature or the danger, 
That's mm-hmm. the ecstasy of acting. I love. I to it me, is. it's 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 an ecstatic experience. We've all performed when we were sick, and when and you feel okay when you're out on stage. I performed you know. when I had blood poisoning. Oh and, no! And no, as, no. from the time I was a young man, I I think on stage, I've broken at least half my toes on stage in front of the audience. Oh usually, God. usually when I was younger, I'd be the young leading man who wakes up on the couch after a night of drinking and stumbles around the stage with a hangover. So I couldn't see where my toes were going. <laughs> oh, Alan, what an image. Alan of many broken toes. The other thing that sticks in my mind from the chair is that moment where there you have an impulsive moment and you change your mind about something and you're very vulnerable. And those two things, the impulsivity and the vulnerability, are two things you can't fake. You can't act that. It has to come over you somehow. To me, the technique of acting is not nearly so much how to pronounce your words well as to be overtaken by things like that. And when I mean, that happens, it is such oh a wonderful God. feeling to take flight truly. like that. Truly, truly. Do you yes. do you have did you find over the years that you developed a technique for being overtaken by something that the character doesn't expect? I don't think I have a technique. I, in fact, I'm a kind of disorderly person. I have ADD. I'm easily I sort of stumble around a lot. And I, I think I do a lot of the imagination work about the character's life and circumstances. So that, because, you know, our performance comes from the past. Our performance comes from information and impulses that the character already has in them that, that, that dictate, that promote, that provoke what you do. And so I sometimes feel like if I've really not just like a student, well, she did this and she did that, written it down, not just that way, a certain amount of analytical thought, but mainly just sort of daydreaming about the character's most important experiences as vis-a-vis the play or the movie. What are the experiences that are important in that world? And thinking about them and daydreaming, you come up with just very, sometimes emotional, very important kinds of daydreams about the character that then are in you. They're in you. So you're, you're traveling into the scene with them, and hopefully they come forward uh, in, un, in unexpected ways. So I wouldn't say it's much more than that. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not like doing it in the moment. I, it's my preparation. And so when I come out in a scene, either on stage or in a film, I have that in me. It's just like you as a person. If someone asks you about your childhood, you, you don't have to go for it. You, you've got it. You know, you do you know what I mean? It comes out. So if you go, do the right kind of deep imaginative work about your character's situation vis-a-vis the, the piece of material, not just some broad overview, it's in there. I was, I was interested in a conversation you had that I was watching in a video about how you asked for a jacket to be constructed like your mother's yes. for a scene, for a part of the, 
the series Hollywood. Yes, because that and that reminded me that 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 actors often feel that when they put on part of the costume, you often it's the shoes that they they feel more comfortable as the person. What what was it for you that with the jacket? Well, that era is actually my mother and my aunt wore that kind of clothing, and that era was my mother's era and my aunt Phoebe's era, and they were both women of enormous charm, one amongst others. And uh, charm is a form of politeness, in a sense, or maybe it's maybe politeness leads to charm. I mean, it's interest in others, how how another person is feeling, uh, what have they achieved? Oh, that's so wonderful that you did that. There's a kind of gracious uh, coming forward of that period. Uh, charming women who are wanting to know that everything how everything is for you in a social setting. Mm. And so I gave them a picture of my mother in a certain suit. I said, this is, this is a great image for this character. And so they, they actually kindly, I, I, I just gave it as an image. They kindly ca- copied it exactly and the blouse exactly. And we found a little pin that was reminiscent. Of, and it, it really just, um, it wasn't so much my mother's own personality, but the character of women at the time and and those women that we see in the movies of that epoch, a certain kind of graciousness that would be seen as not highfalutin like snooty, but overdone today. But it was sort of lovely. It was sort of a lovely quality from that time. Was there a change that you didn't expect when you wore the clothes that you had that reflected that period for you? I think it just evoked absolutely evoked that in me. Actually, I, I think it. I, I I think that performance, which a lot of people liked very much, and uh, when I saw it, I thought I thought, you know, it really brought that forth in me. Absolutely, it wasn't just an intellectual thought. It just uh, I just had that whole sense of sitting upright and leaning forward, and and the interest in meeting someone, extending the hand, leaning forward. Oh, how do you do? You know, there's a kind of, yeah, it absolutely brought it out in me. No question. I had that same thing when when I was doing MASH. I wore boots, the same boots, every day for 11 years. Oh and my they were God. boots that had been worn in combat by a real person. And it really meant a lot to me to feel that shoe, that boot on my foot every day. Of course it did. It's one of the few things I kept with me when I left the show. I completely understand that. I mean, first of all, that show was just something in the American culture that will be, that is permanent. And that, but you know, that, oh, I'm so interested to know you wore those boots and they were worn by someone in combat. And dog That's tags too. Dog tags that had been worn by real people. I remember their names. This touches me so much. This reminds me. You can go too far with this. Because it reminds yeah. me of the you know, story an old actor told me when I was a very young actor. And he said there was a guy who was playing the part of Lincoln in a theater right across the street from the Lambs Club. And mm-hmm. he would go into the Lambs Club for lunch during rehearsals. And he had this thing about wearing the shoes. So the first day he wore the shoes and these two older actors noticed him coming in. The next day he wears the pants next day the jacket and he's growing a beard 
And finally, he comes in with all of that on in a stovepipe hat. And one of the older actors says to the other, that that young man won't be satisfied until he's assassinated. (laughs) That's amazing. It is. It, it is funny what some of us need to just yes. push us over the edge where we don't care anymore. We just are the person. When we come back from our break, Holland Taylor tells me how she found former Texas Governor Ann Richards such a compelling figure that she was determined to bring her to life on the stage. And how, as she performed the play called Anne in theaters across the country over the last decade, it's evolved and sharpened. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alder Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or, for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Holland Taylor, where you really, really amazed me with how you were the person was when you played Ann Richards, the governor of Texas. What a, what a job. Thank you so much. First of all, I have to say that I was lifted to a place beyond my usual normal capacities in that role. Because, first of all, the whole thing was not like a job I got. It was a mission I was on. And it was something, I'm not that woo-woo person or spiritual, actually, or maybe I am, but I'm not actively, consciously so, to my loss, I'm sure. But when she died, I was really overwhelmed with grief that seemed, I mean, I had met her, I had had lunch with her once, and I adored her, and I followed her and I was delighted by her but but I didn't know her personally when she died I could not get over it it was quite unnatural given that I was not close to her and about a couple of months later I thought what is this you know and I I thought I got to do something creative about her I have to do something and I, I felt the obvious thing. Well, I'll play her in a movie of the week or something. Uh, uh, somebody's got to do this woman, this character. And I thought of the people I know who I've worked with who are producers. I mean, I thought of Norman Lear, obviously, and he knew her. Of course, he had founded the People for the American Way with Barbara Jordan. So I thought he, and, and I found that I didn't get in touch with them and I didn't get in touch. 
And then it came to me literally driving to work. I was in two and a half men at the time. I drove to work one day and I said to myself, why aren't you doing something about this? Hmm. Why aren't you getting somebody to produce, write a script? And And I realized in a shock because it's not a movie of the week. It's not a biopic. It's nothing like that. It's a play. She's a live speaking on stage to human beings she can see who can you know it's that connection which she was so extraordinary and i literally it was as if talk about the road to damascus i mean my life changed at that moment this was something so unlike me i mean i was 60 at the time or more i forget what i was exactly but and this is the first uh, time you wrote something Absolutely. Although I like the act of writing. I like writing and I'm a very big reader of good literature. So, you know, but yeah. And, and people, people would say, why don't you write? And I said, because I haven't got a play in me. I'm not that. You know, I'm a journeyman actor. Leave me alone. So hmm. I got the idea. I, this was not an idea, like a, a showbiz idea, a property. I'm going to develop this. It was nothing <laughs> like that. This was... I am going to research her and I'm going to write a play that will reveal her persona. That is all I cared about because I thought if I can make a hologram, if I can create a, a, a being, a, you know, a being in front of the audience that is, in, that is like her, truly like her, it will inspire people in a, to a degree, in much the way she did. And I wanted to carry that inspiration forth because that's what her persona was. And so I, I, and I learned how to research. I was quite, I was quite, you know, I had this ADD situation. So that work was actually great for me because there were so many different tasks. I could jump from one to the other. The research at the, I researched with the archive. I researched with people I, because of the Smith's quite great friendship with her family i had access to her closest people her family and her closest people in her administration who were also her best friends and then for about three you know two and a half three years almost i researched and uh, all of her speeches but again looking at her speeches and her writing i was not just looking at everything i wasn't doing a biography i was looking for stuff that would reveal her persona and I asked the people, her, her, her best friends uh, who were in her government, too, I said, what, what events should I look back in and find videos for that would show who she was? So I did that deeply. Then I, you know, I, I just absorbed so much about her. And then after a period of time, I thought, I better start writing so that I'm still ambulatory when I, when I finish this play. So I just started creating a shape for it. Oh, and I should mention that this is the mysteries of this amaze me still. When I stopped on that road going to work, what actually came to me when I had that realization, oh, it's a play, that's what it is. The four or five operating principles of the play came to me right then. Hmm. And I did and I did exactly that. The fact that it would be a graduation speech was kind of obvious because in a graduation speech, you can speak to the generations. You can cover any number of light and important topics. And you've got kids in front of you and middle-aged people and elders and great people and dignified people and 
tots, and you've got everybody there in the audience. So you speak to that audience as though, the, and it is your theater audience, they become one and the same. But And then I had this centerpiece, which was an hour in, in the life of a governor, an hour in her office. And I don't know why I knew exactly what it was like, just the combination of the thousands of stories I'd heard. And when I did the first iteration of the play in Galveston, Jennifer Treat, who was her fundraiser and friend, was almost angry with me. She said, I need to know. I, I need to know how in the world you could create a situation that is exactly my experience with Governor Richards <laughs> in her office. I need to know how you did that. That's the advantage and, of the research you did. But what, what's yeah. added to that is you were magnificent as a writer. You you didn't just compile things she oh, said no. or moments. Oh, no, there's almost nothing she said in the play. Right. It was sh- shocking to see how believable it was, the yes. interaction well, between you and and the assistant on the on the loudspeaker on the yeah yeah well it was a, that's why I feel the whole thing was a gift. How long did you play it? I played it in about eight different theaters. At first, the first see, I had to start big because this is Ann Richards, the governor of Texas. You don't do that in a black box theater. It's absurd. So um, the first run was just a week at the Galveston Grand Opera, which is one of the great theaters. I think it's the Texas State Theater. It's one of the most beautiful theaters you'll ever hope to see. 18, 1895, I guess they built it. And uh, the first time I, the play was much longer then. It was about two hours and 45 minutes long with an intermission, two hours and 45 minutes long. And the first time I ever got through it, because I was doing everything I mean, I, you know, without uh, so, so learning, it was a challenge in the midst of all else that I had to do. And I was buying props on eBay. I mean, it was crazy. So, did you have anything of hers? I don't have anything of hers. I I I didn't have anything of hers. I I have since been given some things of hers, which is lovely. Um, over the course of seven, well, like I say, eight runs are however many. Anyway, we did it at the Galveston Opera House. Six months later, I did it at the San Antonio Empire, the Great Empire Theater in San Antonio, with a rewrite, a significant cut. And but every time I cut, I added because I was rewriting. I was re- I was sure. I was getting juicier and juicier and better and better and refining it, and learning. Then six months after that, I came back to Galveston, which was a year later. Did it again at the Galveston Grand as a as partly as a warm-up for doing it at the Paramount in Austin, which I did like, you know, a week later. And then after that was another six months or so where I had a period to do another big cut, another big clean through, and then some adding and some rewriting and some enriching before I did it at the great Schubert Theater in Chicago, if you can imagine, A, a huge but glorious house. So and then one week after that, with a with another tinkering and rewriting, I have to relearn this stuff. That you know, learn it differently. I did uh, the Kennedy Center, and the Kennedy Center was a blowout. I mean, mm. that was a month, and I can't even tell you the joy of performing this play at the Kennedy Center. It must have been just it, fantastic because you. It, you you can't you can't know more about the imaginary circumstances than you do when you research it and write it. Yes, and you wrote and so, it so that it it worked. 
Yes, and and the writing, you know, I think I've been in a lot of plays and I've seen a million plays. So as I'm writing, I think like I can write a play. I can write this. All right, I'll refine that. I can write this play. I can write this play. (laughs) Has it made you want to write other plays? Uh, You know, not really, because it was such a, I tell you, this was something that was gifted to me. Are you going to do it more? I am going to do it one more time. It actually did physically it, the la- and then I did it in Austin three years after Broadway. I took it back to Texas because I promised I always would, and that was a, that was a blowout run that one just simply could not believe in Austin. That was in 2016, and then uh, I was going to do it at the Pasadena Playhouse because I wanted to premiere it on the West Coast uh, before I croak, you know. So because I played the other great theater capitals, so. I wanted to do that. So I was actually in prep to do I was learning it. I was learning again. In fact, I almost got it completely learned when they shut down. It was for the pandemic. Uh, so that was in the winter of 2020. So it was postponed, and we didn't know for how long. So here it will be two years later. Next, next early spring, I'm going to do it at the Pasadena Playhouse in Pasadena, obviously. And um, I am starting to train now because... It is, it is a very, very, very taxing, uh, rejoice, rejoicing night in the theater, but it, it does take a tremendous amount of stamina, I have to say. It really does. You're, I've done a one-person play, too. Oh, Not two and a half oh, hours, more like an hour and a half. I got it down. I, every iteration, I cut it, Alan. So it is now a truly highly polished, and there are still things I regret cutting out. Uh, but it's now, with an intermission, it's two hours. The first act is the first act is an hour is 60 minutes long and the second act is 50 minutes long so it's a it's an hour and 50 minutes of playing time when i was young i didn't know really how to relate to the other actor it was my performance that i was giving when it was my turn to perform, you know, I, I went oh, through that, that many, many actors do until you learn that your performance is really in the other person's eyes. Absolutely. But I, I remember after, <laughs> after about three months, I, I might forget a line, but I'd know what the scene was about. Sure. And after about six months, I'd forget a line. I wouldn't remember what the scene was about, but at least I knew <laughs> what the play was about. <laughs> and then it, when it got to be a year, I was—I didn't know what I was doing on stage. I saw the exit lights, and I knew I was in a theater, but I didn't know what was the point. It's a real challenge. It is a real mental challenge. And I found I needed more sleep as time went on, more rest, more. You had to eat, more, you know, had to really eat carefully. When am I going to eat to give myself the fuel to do this show? The longer the run, the more you had to really take care of yourself. Because I could run out of gas. That's right, and 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 you have you don't know if you're going to have voice that night. Is this a cold or just morning sludge? Or you know, oh, you don't it's know. so scary. Yeah, I got the flu when I was in Anne. While you were doing Anne, you got the flu. I did, and it was really terrible because I had to play. There was no way I could miss a performance because it's like a concert. Uh, uh, there's no way. There's no understudy. I mean, there can be an understudy for me in a situation like that. It, it you know it's it's like a concert if you're off you're off and the, i just thought it would it was early in the run probably the exhaustion around opening and everything 
and all the press you have to do while you're rehearsing to open it's just because you're the only one so uh it was about 10 days i think after opening and I thought, I cannot miss the performance. It will ruin the reputation of the show. People say, oh, I heard she was out. You know, let's, let's, let's not, don't get tickets yet. You know, I just thought I couldn't do that to the theater, to the show. I could not. So I, you know, that classic thing of getting the steroid shots and going on the, that thing and just somehow getting through. But to tell you the truth, as I said earlier, I felt like hell, but not, as, not so bad when I was actually on stage. My wife, Arlene, has a, a really good solution to something like that. She has a little plaque that she sometimes write on it, writes on it, Arlene feels like cooking tonight. And she can check that off, or she can check off, Arlene doesn't feel like cooking tonight. And I <laughs> thought it would be really nice if we, if you and I could put on the marquee, Alan feels like acting tonight. <laughs> That's so great. And that then, so and then anybody great. who wants to watch it could come in and watch it. Oh, that is so great. Yeah, I'm going to remember that. Holland feels like acting tonight. Well, I'm going to have to feel like acting this spring. So I'm already arranging to, you know, work with a trainer and get and work with a trainer for my voice too, which is not as strong as it was. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of work leading up. And then it takes me two months to relearn it. Two months. Because I, I work with somebody who cues me. Because the only way you can learn it. It always amazes me when people can remember large chunks of a play they've been in because when i'm finished with a play i don't remember it at all i have to work just as hard to learn it again i don't have it in a ready memory it takes me two months to relearn the play that i did working two hours a day six days a week for two months is how i do it i hire somebody to hold the script and watch me as i learn it I learn a page, I relearn a page at a time, and then that's out of pearl. And I get to the point where after, you know, a month, a month and a half or so, I start doing, I start saying, all right, now I'm going to say the first act. So you do it that way. And then now I'm going to say the second act. And so I get to the point where I can just simply unspool the entire play, which takes me an hour and 50 minutes. It's like a big deal. It's a big deal to relearn it, but that's what I have to do. But, but I've had this, I've had an experience that I wonder if you have had too. Having done a play, say, in New York for six months or a year, then take two or three months off and do it in Los Angeles, I've had to relearn it, but all of the things that didn't matter, that were fluff, fell away. And the concentrate of what made it work best remained. It yes. was like a filtering process. Doing it, redoing it, made it, made it, made it better. No question. In fact, that's why I've I've been so lucky with this creation of Anne. Because how many playwrights have you know? Well, let's talk. Let's say four because of the time period between them. How many playwrights have four times in a on a big stage? Uh, big public national situation to do their play four times with enough time between to do a good rewrite. Who gets that? So that's my play that's on paper now that Dramatist uh, Play Service publishes is, is a, I am very proud of it as a piece of writing. And uh, about my performance, I wouldn't say it had that much of a transformation, but the fact is every time you do something you've done before, you're sitting on your own shoulders, you know, I, people said, you're so relaxed. 
And I guess that that comes of having achieved a certain peace about it from having tested it those many times so that I hope Pasadena will be a further revelation of it for me. It, it's been really wonderful talking with you because I love the chance to talk about what we do with mm. somebody who does it so well, so mm. beautifully. I hate the sounds of parting. I hate that this sounds like it's the end well, of we, our talk. Well, there's still more to do it. before we go. We always end our show with seven quick questions. Are you game? Sure. What do you wish you really understood? I'm an instinctive person, and I'm an instinctive actor. And then after after the instinct has made me act, I can sort of think about it, but I didn't arrive at it. So I wish I had a better, in the moment, understanding of myself psychologically insofar as how I engage with others. Because I'm just tumbling along. So that leads into the next question, accidentally. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Usually clumsily. (laughs) So I'm not the best at it. I generally try to avoid it because unless it's my business, why should I? Next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? That one. (laughs) (laughs) I know is that strange. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, it's it's as a concept, a strange question. Nothing rushes to mind, actually. Okay, that's an answer in itself. Yes, right. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, that's such a miserable circumstance to be in. So, uh, I, you know, I often say, you know, uh, nature is calling, or I hear my mother. I mean, I don't know what, but I, I immediately become uh, desperate to get away because there's nothing more miserable than being trapped by somebody who's talking, and they're the only person who's really listening. Let's say you're at a dinner party and you're seated next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? Well, I, if I know anything about them, I'm grateful because I hate that situation that, that is often criticized of saying to somebody, what do you do? Especially if they're famous for doing it. Yes, exactly. And you don't know that. <laughs> And yeah, you're, you know, right. you're in New York or California, if you're at some party or a gathering, you know, there's probably you're talking to a person who's won the Nobel Award and you just don't happen to know it. <laughs> so, you know, I actually remember this from your conversation with Helen Nairn. And I, I remember thinking, what a good idea. Or maybe it was you that said it, because I don't remember it that accurately, that it's good to ask about your family. Uh, or do you live here? Or is your family here? Uh, do you have lots of children, you know, depending on their age? Have you got grandkids? You know, I think that is a great way because, uh, as you or she pointed out, people do love to talk about their families. But it's a it's a neutral thing to ask about, and you don't uh, put yourself in a position of seeming an illiterate fool, which is something I'd like to avoid. What gives you confidence? Not much. I'm I'm not very confident a person. And it's so funny because people think that I am because of my manner. But when I'm in a, when I'm in a play and, I'm, and, I'm, and I know my world there, I am quite confident. So work gives me confidence. The act of work mm. gives me confidence. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, my goodness. I, I, you know, a bunch of books are flooding my mind. Of course, Stella's point of view about acting in her books 
really altered how I think about my work. And that cannot, or, or really codified how I think about my work. So that has to be life-changing in a sense, because my work is so much wrapped up in who I am or who I feel like I am. Well, unfortunately, we got to go now, but I really have enjoyed meeting you and getting to know you a little bit. Same here. Just fabulous, Alan. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Holland Taylor's extensive career in film and television includes over 100 episodes of the sitcom Two and a Half Men. And more recently, the miniseries Hollywood, The Morning Show, and The Chair, The play she wrote and stars in, called Anne, will have its West Coast premiere in March next year at the Pasadena Playhouse in Pasadena, California. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This is the last episode of Season 14's Clear and Vivid. I'll be back next week with executive producer Graham Shedd when we'll be previewing Season 15. It kicks off December 7th with author Max Brooks. Max tells me how his obsession with zombies led to his becoming an advisor to the Modern War Institute at West Point. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.